They say that in your early 20s, your late teens and early 20s can be an impressionable time in your life. And this gives you any indication of how my life was marked uh, for the coming years. I probably spent the better part of a year uh, each night closing at McDonald's on Kennedale Hill. And when those closing hour would hit, uh, they would pull out a mixtape. Remember what those are? Uh, they pull out a mixtape and there would be two songs that would play every single night as we closed at that McDonald's. One was Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It, <laughs> which was quite appropriate. The other one was Don McLean's American Pie. The song would start and finish by the time we got done cleaning. <laughs> if you're at all familiar with McLean's 1971 hit song, American Pie, then you might agree with Ted, Tim Nudd, who offers a fair summary of the song when he calls it this, one of the great cryptic masterpieces in the history of American music. Since its release, many have sought to decipher its lyrical references with limited help from the songwriter over the years until recently. It's actually a documentary that just came out in the last couple of years to celebrate uh, the anniversary of that song. The song marks the end of an age of innocence, is what McLean shares about that. And that shift is set against the backdrop named at the end of the first verse, uh, the deaths of three prominent musicians in a plane crash on February 3rd, 1959, near Clear Lake, Iowa. What the song calls the day the music died. An event that was particularly impactful on that young uh, Don McLean. Well, our text this morning picks up another day the music died. And like the narrative of the aforementioned song, the world in which these disciples now find themselves appears to be marked by loss and seemingly headed in the wrong direction. At the same time, though, and now just emerging into view, this same world is undergoing a significant shift. Something big has happened, something new on the horizon, and what will come of this will not only change the lives of, of these same disciples, not to mention countless others in their own generation, in our generation, in every generation in between, but it also introduces a whole new kind of life. So let me ask you about your weekend. How's your weekend going? What are you having a good weekend here? Some good weekends? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. Anybody having a bad weekend? Anybody? There might be a few who are having a kind of a bad weekend. You know you're having a bad weekend. You know you're having a terrible, rotten weekend and that you're living scared when the location you're at is described as the doors were locked or were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. You know you're having a tough weekend then. Fear of the same authorities, we hear that in verse 19, the fear of the same authorities that went after Jesus, that's where that fear is located. And they're imagining here that they're next. And that's a real fear. It's based on what they have really seen. Over the, the weekend, they've seen sham charges in kangaroo court uh, be held. They've seen a severe beating. Uh, they've seen the turning of a crowd to call for the execution of their rabbi and their teacher. And of course, the humiliating execution that followed. Nobody wants that for themselves. All the things that they just saw go down, they don't want that for themselves. They don't want to be dead. And so it's no wonder they are a shaken bunch when we find them here in the gospel reading. I don't imagine that I need to tell you at this point what fear looks like. We all experience this. 
at some point in our lives, maybe even now, we experience fear. Some of us find it even more so as a way of life. Fear might just be the way we live day in and day out. We're afraid for our lives. We're afraid for the ones we love. We're afraid of seemingly everyday things like relationships, the fear of heights or spiders or the dark. It can be a fear of rejection, a fear of death. And all these things fill us with fear all the more, over and over and over. We can also be afraid of the unknown, not just things that we see. We can also fear that we're not enough, that we don't measure up somehow to the expectation of others or even our own expectations. Maybe in the back of our minds we hear a parent or a grandparent, a teacher or a mentor. We hear their voice and it awakens a kind of fear within us even though it's been many years since those words may have been spoken. We're afraid that we don't make the cut, that we're performing below expectation. And that fear paralyzes us. It paralyzes us in our lives. It causes us to believe things that aren't true. It makes our world smaller. So when we hear locked away and hiding, that could easily describe our lives in the modern age. It doesn't have to just be a bunch of disciples who are running scared. It could be us living scared in our own day. But look what Jesus does. Look what Jesus does in this story. What he does for them. And it's rather surprising. It says in verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them. Now that's surprising for sure because they had seen the same Jesus die. Right? So that's surprising right on its front. And if they hadn't seen the final breath, they certainly knew the brutality that was visited on him. A kind that leaves no survivors. And sure, it's surprising for sure that the same Jesus has somehow materialized in the room, even though the door is closed and locked, that he somehow now appears with them, kind of a Star Trek transporter kind of thing. But then I realize that's just a show. There's nowhere in my life where I see that really happening. So that's surprising indeed. But those words, those words that Jesus speaks to them in that moment, that's surprising when Jesus says peace be with you to a gang who at one point had fallen asleep when they should have been praying Jesus says peace be with you to the same gang that fled when they should have stood alongside him he says peace be with you and in at least one case a person who denied knowing when they should have identified with Jesus Jesus says to him amongst the group there peace be with you He doesn't say thanks for nothing. He doesn't rebuke them. He even doesn't condemn them. Those aren't the first words. Jesus' first words to them are peace be with you. Jesus offers them peace. And that's unexpected. All of it. What a gift, though. What an act of grace for Jesus to offer in the midst of a rotten weekend and very troubling times. And we know that grace can write the fearful life. We can see that in our own world. We don't need Bible stories to tell us that. A year ago, the New York Times reported that in the period between October 2021 and March 2022, close to 90,000 overdue and lost items were returned to the various branch locations of the New York Public Library. 90,000. That's a lot of return books and materials. And with these came notes of gratitude and apologies for not returning the materials sooner. 
One anonymous patron wrote this with their books they returned. Enclosed are the books I have borrowed and kept in my house for 28 to 50 years. (laughs) I am 75 years old now, and these books have helped me through motherhood and my teaching career. I'm sorry for living with these books so long. They became family. But why return all those books during that period? Was it COVID? Was it like COVID-related? Like they lifted, you know, COVID starts opening up and we all return our library books that are overdue? No, it's simply this. The library announced they would no longer be collecting late fees. There would be no reprisals, which led to an avalanche of returns. And not only returns, but stress went down, and we might say fear went down here, and the library traffic actually increased. More people started using the library. Translated to church talk here, let me translate this for you. If you didn't understand normal talk, we'll do a little church talk here this morning. We might say the library placed law with grace, and they saw a harvest. Amen indeed. Hear what the library president, Tony Marks, said about all this. Here's what Tony Marks says. We are not in the fine collecting business. We're in the encouraging to read and learn business, and we're getting in our own way. That's interesting because when I read John 3.17, that's that verse after that popular one, John 3.16. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'm reminded that Jesus, too, is not in the fine collecting business. Jesus offers grace. He's not collecting fines in that room with his disciples. In that room where a lot of fines could easily have been collected, a lot of pounds of flesh that could have been exacted. But Jesus does none of that. He instead offers peace in verse 19. Shows them the recognizable wounds, verse 20, to bring that peace about and offers them peace once more. And then in verse 22, the narrative says that he breathes and then gives them the Holy Spirit. So he offers them peace multiple times and then he gives them something. That is completely unexpected. And of course this breathing here is not theatrics. It's deeply and heavily symbolic. The ancients in developing the language to describe the invisible but present God drew on familiar imagery of breath and wind. Something experienced as subtle, if you just blow on your hand, that's kind of subtle. When a giant windstorm comes, it's a lot less subtle at that point. But they're familiar with the power and the subtlety of wind and air and that it's not immediately visible. It's a way to envision God and envision God's activity. The ancients spoke of ruach and pneuma, words we hear as spirit in translation of the Hebrew and the Greek, but just as easily also point to common wind and breath. The same John 3 chapter from John 3.17 finds this location earlier includes a portion where Jesus will connect this imagery when he speaks about the Spirit's activity and those born of the Spirit using the same wind imagery. But these ideas are older than Jesus' first century breathing. In fact, in Genesis, the human creature is animated, given life through God's breath in Genesis 2-7. Ezekiel 37, verses 5-6, through 6, as well, divine breath, bringing to life what was previously dead. And you remember, that's the valley of the dry bones. This is the kind of backstory. It's the imagery that this gospel writer can draw on in verse 22. And by so, by doing so, directs us to a real Easter miracle. 
You think about like the little kid voice, and it's a Christmas miracle. Well, it's an Easter miracle. Here we go. That God in Jesus Christ has claimed this people who are inhabiting fearful lives. That's an Easter miracle. That God hears them. That God sees them. That God knows them. That God stands with them, amongst them. Jesus in the room there with them and forgives them and consoles their fears. Peace and peace again. That's an Easter miracle and breathes fresh life into them. Not inspiration, not as some sort of just kind of pump you up sort of thing. Note the imagery there of pumping up in air and wind. You like that? Was that a nice touch? Okay. Noted. But not just inspiration, but rather the very real presence of God. That's the Easter miracle. That Jesus is with them, abiding with them in spirit, and all the benefits that come with that. Grace, 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 and grace. Dot, dot, dot. Keep filling it in. Even charging them with the continuation of kingdom ministry. And we hear that in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This isn't a power trip or an opportunity to lord it over people and say, Ha! Now I'm Jesus, and I'm going to not let you be forgiven. That's not what that is at all. That's not what Jesus is doing there. But rather, Jesus positions them, his followers, as gospel heralds, grace tellers. That message isn't always received, of course. We know that from John's gospel as well. John chapter 9, you remember the story in Jesus' own ministry when there's a blind man, and he gives that, that same person the gift of sight, but also the gift of faith. But yet there's others there who do not believe in that story. They don't believe the message. And they, their sin instead was identified. And they lived in it. They persisted in that sin. That captures that essence of what this message and this work looks like. And that same holds true in every generation. For some, sins are forgiven. They lay claim to that promise. But for others, they don't lay claim to that. And they persist in those sins. But what if you miss Jesus showing up? Like, you hear all these great stories? Like, yeah, Jesus was just here. What? He's dead. How can he be just here? They're like, oh, he was just here. Yeah, Jesus stopped by. Right? Offered peace to a couple of us, showed us some wounds. But what if you weren't there? What if you're Thomas? Right? You're not there. I feel close to Thomas, the twin. I like that. I think good things can come from twins. I hope they do. <laughs> But what if you miss that? What if you miss Jesus showing up? You miss the breathing part, the Holy Spirit, all of that. We call that guy Doubting Thomas, right? But in truth, he's probably more a realist and shows up rather prominently throughout John's gospel. In fact, there's that story of, of Jesus returning back to raise Lazarus from the grave. And who is it that speaks up in the troop, right? It says, hey, we might as well go back with him and die, right? That's kind of realist talk right there. That's Thomas. It's Thomas. Who's the one when John 14, 6, you know, the I am the way, the truth, and the life. What prompts that? Thomas. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Where are you going? What? That's a, that's a paraphrase of his question, so you can look him up. But it's his question that prompts that great statement from Jesus. Thomas gives voice to not understanding what Jesus is saying, where he's going, etc. And also gives voice to the reality of the situation. So to be confronted 
by these early reports of a resurrected Jesus, Thomas goes realist on us. He says, show me the wounds, then I'll believe. We talk about someone being a doubting Thomas. We usually accompany that with, don't be a doubting Thomas, right? I would say, hey, you don't want to be that. But in all actuality, I imagine that many of us live in this place. And perhaps all the more today, we wander between belief and wanting some kind of assurance to believe. And we want to know that what we believe isn't in vain. Not necessarily looking for certainty, if that could be even provided, but at least some kind of validity to the truths we are holding on to. Show me this is real, and I'll invest. Just give me a little bit. Just show me a, just a, a peek of that. O ye of little faith. Right? O ye of little faith. Sometimes we can condemn ourselves with those, those same kind of thoughts. But look what Jesus does with this. Jesus hits repeat, right? He's among them again. And he offers them in verse 26, more peace. Jesus once more shows up, offers more peace. That's the first word that Thomas is going to hear. And then Jesus is going to do something incredibly odd, and I might say a bit gross, right? It's like, it's like you go back to your, uh, your days as an adolescent youth when someone pulls off their Band-Aid and says, you want to look at it? You want to touch the wound? I visited a student in a hospital one time. He had skin removed off his stomach. He asked me if I want to see it. No, I do not want to see it. <laughs> I don't want to see that. He showed me anyways. I thought I was going to vomit. <laughs> it confirmed I didn't want to see that. <laughs> I had another student many years ago. His parents might actually be in the room right now. Um, but he had a Band-Aid, and he wanted me to smell it. It's the worst smelling band-aid I've ever smelled in my life. But right, this is weird. To stick your hand in the side, stick your hands in the holes. What, what are we doing here? But Thomas, that's what he asked for. That's what Thomas wanted. That's what Thomas was praying. Imagine for a week there, Thomas had a whole week where he probably was listening to his buddies all talking about how they saw Jesus and couldn't believe Jesus was resurrected. It wasn't like Jesus showed up 10 minutes later to go, hey, Thomas, sorry to keep you waiting, now serving number 23. It wasn't anything like that. It was a week later. And Jesus shows up and offers to Thomas this opportunity. Jesus calls Thomas to faith, and he even speaks of what is coming. That there will be those who are coming into the life of faith, future disciples, future Jesus followers, who will not have seen, but will still believe. That's the power of the message that's going forward here. We talked about the Spirit inhabiting people and transforming them and changing them. It's changing their minds as well. It's changing their hearts as well. To know that people who have not seen the resurrected Jesus have a sense of that Jesus' presence in their life. And it absolutely disrupts everything for the better for them. And that's what he gives to his disciples in that room as he calls them to be heralds to that message and also those who go with the Spirit within and before them. Jesus is seen here in John's Gospel in the latter part here, these, these last few chapters, as being at the tomb. We saw that last week with Easter. He's here now in the locked room. He shows up twice there. And later on, we'll see Jesus show up on the beach. The resurrected Jesus each time meeting us where we are at, even when that place is fear and death, meeting us with peace, meeting us 
with consolation, meeting us with very real presence of God, and meeting us at those places where we thought nobody's getting in because that door is shut and it's locked good. But Jesus yet still shows up. So I guess the question this morning for us to consider is why do we oftentimes run and choose a life of delusion? There's a thing called Cotard's delusion. It's where people who suffer from this hold the delusional belief that they are already dead and do not exist. In some cases, the afflicted see themselves uh, putrefying or rotting, even that, that they have lost blood or, or an organ. They're convinced that they don't, they're missing an organ. It's been taken or it's gone or it's died, even when that certainly has not been the case. And I wonder how many times we live with our own uh, spiritual Cotard's delusion, where we might imagine ourselves in that fearful and frightful place, that place where we are not alive, where we don't have hope, where there's not a sense that Jesus is going to be present to us or even hears our prayer. And I think the encouragement for us this morning here in John's gospel is that like Thomas, Jesus hears our prayer and our desire. And Jesus hears it down to the very minute detail. You want to touch wounds? I got some wounds. You want to stick your hand in my side? All right. <laughs> Let's do this. Jesus can also hear us in those prayers that aren't spoken, but our lives reflect them and tell that tale, that we live in a hot mess. And Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you, offers us the peace that we don't know in our lives. And it can be painful, and we can live through long seasons of that. Sometimes we live through a whole lifetime of that. Jesus extends to us peace. And it's powerful when we go to the epistle and recognize that those who are living in exile, those who are scattered, who are not homed and wouldn't be considered people of an inheritance. Exiles aren't inheritance people, right? They're people fleeing for their lives and losing anything of standing. Peter says there to them in that letter, although you have not seen him, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, this morning, my hope and prayer for each one of us is the hope and prayer of Jesus that we might receive the spirit and the life that comes with that, that we might know Christ's peace just as much as we know God's grace, which has been given to us freely. And friends, that is an Easter miracle. Praise God for that. Maybe so for us today in our generation and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray together.